join us as we celebrate Wooddale Church's global impact. Wooddale's Worldwide Week is a chance for you to hear live testimonies, meet global and local partners, support missions by shopping at the global market, and learn about serving opportunities. Wooddale Worldwide is about extending friendship with people all over the world while sharing the message of hope offered through Jesus Christ. Along with our global partners, we've planted thousands of churches, trained up Christian leaders around the world, brought the living word to those who've never heard it, offered practical help through clean water and medical services, and brought a message of hope to the least of these. There was a Sunday school teacher who had a group of children in her class, and she was explaining to them the story that Jesus told about the self-righteous, pious Pharisee who was praying in the temple. He lifted his hands and looked up to God, and he said, God, I thank you that I am not like those sinners, the adulterers and the thieves, and especially like this tax collector who's standing next to me. And then she talked about that tax collector, and she related to them that Jesus said he couldn't even lift his head towards heaven. That in fact, he beat his chest and he said, God, mercy on me. I am such a sinner. And then she explains to the children how terrible and prideful and arrogant that Pharisee was, and that God didn't hear his prayer but that God did hear the prayer of that poor tax collector because he was humble and he was repentant and he was seeking God's help. She was done with her lesson and she looked out and asked a little boy if he would stand and pray for the close of their Sunday school hour and so he was happy to do that. He stood up and everybody bowed their heads and he prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like that Pharisee. Sometimes it is easier to see the Pharisee in other people than it is in our own lives. Would you agree? At least I struggle with that. I can point out self-righteousness in others. I don't always see it in myself. Speaking of Pharisees, why was Jesus so hard on them? If you read the Gospels, you have probably read some of his harsh words. For instance, over in Matthew chapter 23, beginning at verse 3, we have what's known as the woes that Jesus pronounces on them. Let me read to you some of them. Verse 3, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Look at verse 14. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Verse 27, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to be people as, who are righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. 
You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Those are harsh words, aren't they? No wonder there was this tension between Jesus and the Pharisees. And the question is, why? What was the cause of that tension? What, What was behind the animosity that they had toward Jesus and his willingness to so forthrightly rebuke them when it came to tax collectors and adulterers and thieves and the sinners of the day, the known sinners of the day, Jesus wasn't that way with them. He's very gracious and gentle and kind. Well, I think to understand that tension better, let's look at two incidents that are found in Matthew chapter 12. So why don't you open your Bibles there. Two incidents in Matthew chapter 12. The first one describes Jesus and the disciples walking through a grain field. And as they walk through, they're pulling some of the heads of grain and they rub it between their hands to get rid of the chaff. And then they eat the meat of that. That was perfectly legal. Nothing wrong with that. The law prescribed that. The law said that the farmers were not allowed to harvest their entire field. They had to leave some grain standing especially for those who are poor, that they could harvest and have food to eat. So Jesus' disciples haven't done anything wrong. So why are the Pharisees so grumpy about it? Well, we get the answer. It's all about timing. Look what it says in verse 2. They complain, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the what? The Sabbath. That's the problem. You can do this anytime you want, but this is work. You know, the Sabbath law says one day, the seventh day, we are to rest and to worship God and take a break from life, so to speak. It was a law for the Jews that God established in his covenant relationship with them. The problem is the Pharisees came along and they tried to define what work was. They went way beyond the scriptures and they created rules about the rules. And Jesus and his disciples, in their mind, are breaking the rules. And so Jesus responds to them. And I want you to listen to what he says in verse 3. He says, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do so, but only for the priests. Verse 5, or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. Look what he says, verse 8. Let's see it together. For the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. And this is what infuriates them. The fact that Jesus calls himself the Son of Man of man and proclaims lordship, right? And the fact that he says that he's even the Lord over the Sabbath. In essence, what he's saying is, I'm God. I'm in charge. I'm greater than the temple. I'm greater than David. And in their mind, he's this peasant from Nazareth. This is a bold and ridiculous claim. He has no business saying things like that. Well, the next thing Jesus does is he goes into the synagogue. 
And in the synagogue, there's a man with a withered hand. And of course, the Pharisees are just waiting to see, what is Jesus going to do? Is he going to break the Sabbath? Is he going to perform work? Watch what happens. Come back to the text with me. Verse 11, Jesus responds to them and their criticism. He says, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So Jesus is kind of reinterpreting everything. He's claiming that he has a right to do that. And as a result of that, look what it says. It said that the Pharisees called a meeting to plot how to kill Jesus. My goodness. You want to kill Jesus over these things and over these statements? Let's take this a little bit further. What's really going on here between Jesus and the Pharisees? Well, if you look at the text carefully and study the Gospels, it is very clear that the problem the Pharisees have is this. For them, rules matter more than people. Not just the rules, but the rules about the rules that they've concocted. Secondly, for Jesus, oh, there's a difference. People matter more than the rules. So the Pharisees are rules over people, and Jesus is, no, people over the rules, especially their ridiculous rules that they come up with. So let's, uh, let's try to understand this from an illustrative point of view. So I'm going to grab my shepherd's staff back here. And let's talk a little bit about shepherds. You know, shepherds carried two instruments that were very important to them. One was a staff, and the other was the rod. We read about that in Psalm 23. And sometimes the staff and the rod were just one instrument. There was always a, a hook on the top, and they would use that hook to pull sheep back who were going astray. Or if a sheep came too close to the edge, they would hook it by the leg and pull it back. All of that was meant to care for the sheep, to love the sheep, to look after them. It was a good thing. At the bottom, sometimes there would be a piece of iron that would be attached to it or a large, heavy knob of wood that existed to defend the sheep against predators, to beat them back or to hurt them or injure them in some way. But that staff was used by the shepherds to care for and love and protect and provide for those sheep in his care. Liken the staff to the law. Liken the shepherd to those who were charged by God to oversee the people of God. And you begin to understand what's going on here. You know, Jesus, it said, had compassion on the people when he came because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Their shepherds were abusing them and abandoning them. They took the law. Instead of using the law to love them and care for them, they used the law to beat them, to judge them, to condemn them, to separate them, to 
count some of them as unworthy of going to the synagogue or to the temple because of their sinful state. Adulterers, adulteresses, tax collectors, thieves, and other such sinners. Jesus comes and he corrects all of that thinking. He comes and he corrects all of that mindset. You see, Jesus looks at the law as something that was given by God to love on the people and to protect the people and care for the people and defend the people. Not as an instrument to hurt the people and judge and condemn them, but to keep them in the guardrails so that God could bless them. What the Pharisees end up doing, though, is they take it and they use it as an instrument, as I said, to judge and condemn and really hurt the people. So, for instance, it wasn't good enough that God said, keep the Sabbath holy, no work on the Sabbath, worship and rest God, and rest in your life as you stand before God. They come along and they say, let's really define work, and they come up with 39 extra rules about the Sabbath. Now, the reason God gave them the Sabbath in the first place is that God wanted them to be different than all the other nations on earth. See, all the other nations didn't observe a Sabbath. They worked every day. They were always trying to get ahead. They were an agrarian culture. So every day it was about reaping a harvest, about planting the seed. It was about selling and trading and making money and trying to sustain yourself and maybe even get ahead a little bit further. And God says, I don't want you to be like that. I don't want you to depend on materialism. I don't want you to depend on your crops or your sheep or your goats, or your animals. I want you guys, I want you to depend on me. I'll look out for you, I'll provide for you, I'll defend you. And the Sabbath is the way that you demonstrate to all the other nations that I'm God and I am your provider. To make them jealous. Because you guys don't have to work so hard. You honor me and look how I bless you and how I take care of you. The problem though, those Pharisees just, just went way too far with it. We even have a modern day example. I was reading... Uh, an article out of a newspaper happened a couple of years ago in Tel Aviv. It says, tenants let their apartments burn while they asked a rabbi whether a call to the fire department on the Sabbath would violate Jewish law. Three apartments were gutted in the fire in the predominantly ultra-Orthodox city of B'nai Brak near Tel Aviv. But fortunately, no one was hurt. Normal Jewish law considers using a telephone on the Sabbath work because it involves the breaking of an electrical current. They are, however, permitted to break the Sabbath in case of an emergency, which required a rabbinical ruling. They contacted the rabbi. 30 minutes later, he said yes. <laughs> that is just going a little bit too far, isn't it? That's just going a little bit too far. I wish I could say that I'm not like that, and you're not like that. But we fall into those same traps ourselves. Let me give you some examples. One of the ways that we end up being kind of like Pharisees is what I'm going to call legalism, right? Now, I grew up, and I've talked to you about this before, I grew up in a very legalistic background. I remember going bowling one Sunday afternoon with a friend and getting in big trouble because it was on the Sabbath. And I should be at home resting instead. The kind of background I grew up in, it was wrong to play cards. 
It was wrong to dance. It was wrong to go to the theater. Some were a little bit more extreme. It was wrong for women to ever wear anything other than a dress. You weren't supposed to wear makeup, but you weren't supposed to wear jewelry. In fact, they had one crazy law that said, a rule that said, even husbands and wives should not practice mixed bathing. Wow. Rigid, legalistic. And anybody who violated those rules were looked at as being less spiritual. And I have heard my share in that environment of people being gossiped about, judged, and condemned because they don't practice the same rules. Another aspect of this is what I would call, I'll abbreviate, theological convictions. I was going to abbreviate it with convict, but that didn't look good. All right? Theological convictions. What do I mean by that? Well, I don't know if you ever noticed or not, but when you start getting serious about God, which is a wonderful thing, you get kind of zealous about God, the downside can be that in your zealousness, you will look at other people who are not as excited as you and become kind of judgmental about them. They don't read as much scripture as you read, and they should read more. They don't pray as long as much as you pray. They should pray longer. They don't give as much. They should give more. They don't witness as much. They should witness more. They don't go to church enough. They should go to church more, and because they, we perceive are not as committed as us, well, we feel like we have the right to judge them, gossip about them, talk about them. That's one of the downsides of using the language of mature Christians. You ever thought about that? When we talk about being a mature believer, what do we insinuate? That there's a whole bunch of immature believers. And it just breeds, it just feeds this whole idea of superiority that our pride wants to just latch onto and grab hold of. Let's look at a, a third area that we can get kind of caught up in. I'm going to call this views or preferences. See, what do you mean by that? Well, we all have different views and preferences. We have political views and preferences. Who would have thought that? living in these days. We have uh, certain moral, sexual views and preferences in our culture, in our society. I'm talking about the society in general. We have certain economic views and preferences. We have certain views and preferences about the environment. We have certain views and preferences about immigration. We have certain views and preferences about ethics. And I could just go on and on. We're a very opinionated culture, aren't we? And sometimes... We believe in our views and our preferences so much that anybody who does not have the same view, the same preference as us, we find it okay to judge them, condemn them, get angry with them, put them down, gossip, and talk about them. You don't. I'm just saying some people do. See, you're getting me a little confused here, Pastor Dale, because what if it's the truth? Let's talk about that for a minute. I think there are two guidelines to use. I have to ask myself regarding my legalism or my theological convictions or my views and preferences. Number one, are they biblical? 
In other words, does the Bible, aren't you pressed I can write with my, my finger? All right, all right. Are they biblical? If they are, then hang on to them because if they're truly biblical, then, then they're the truth. If they're not biblical, then it's just my perspective. It's just my preference. It's just my view. It's just my habit. It's just the guidelines that I, that I follow. And because they can't be supported by Scripture, because it's more of a conviction, I don't have the right to judge, to condemn, to gossip, to feel superior to put people down. But if it is biblical, if it is truth, if it's a social issue and, and God has been really clear about this sexual issue, or God has been really clear about this theological conviction, or God has been really clear about guidelines that we are to follow, then we should hang on to that because we're Christ-centered, Bible-based. We don't compromise. We don't give that away. But we have to be careful we don't use it as a club. I mean, like a club to beat, to judge, to condemn, to ridicule, to gossip about those who are not following the truth or those who are rejecting the truth or those who are rebelling against the truth. Which then leads to a very interesting question. And the question that, that leads to is, well then, how do we approach people who have beliefs that are not biblical and violate the scriptures and are dangerous and, and unhelpful? And the answer to that question is it starts with love. It starts with love. See, the reason I really like my new board is I can not have to worry about making a mess, all right? So let's talk a little bit about, about love, okay? How did Jesus approach people that violated the scriptures, that violated truth? Did he approach them condemning and angry? You know, John 3, 16, 17 says that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then we forget verse 17, which says, he did not come, he says, I did not come to condemn the world, but that the world through me might be saved. So Jesus' position of approaching people, those who were violating the word of God, those who weren't living in accordance with God's will, was always from a posture of love. What is love? Well, the Bible tells us. Paul tells us love is joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Using that fruit of the Spirit is how Jesus looked at people. The adulterer, the adulteress, the thief, the murderer, the whatever. So I looked at them. Not only that, but Jesus was also an example of what they should be. Look at the life that Jesus lived, a life according to and pleasing to the will of God. So he approached them from the posture of love and then from the posture of being an example of who Jesus, of, of who God is. And what was so radical for the people when they encountered Jesus is he was so different than the picture that the Pharisees presented of God. They made God look mean and angry and harsh. Jesus comes along, he's full of compassion and he loves them. If you study the life of Jesus, Jesus was also very prayerful. He prayed for the people. He prayed for them. 
often. He would get up early in the morning. What do you think he was praying about? Don't you think he was praying for those who were out of the Father's will? Don't you think he was praying that their eyes would be opened, that the miracles that he was doing would draw them to the Father? We know that Jesus also served. My goodness, he served huge buffet meals, <laughs> feeding of the 5,000, not to mention the kids and their spouses. He ministered to the sick. He touched people's lives. He served them in all kinds of ways. He gave his life away for them, and then he gave his life physically away for them. But one more thing. Jesus always spoke and taught the truth. He didn't waver from that. He didn't back away from that. Because if you don't know what the truth is, you're not going to be able to follow God. If you don't know what the truth is, you can't receive God's forgiveness. You can't be convicted of your sin. But my point is, he did, he spoke about the truth from the posture of love, from the posture of being an example, from the posture of prayer, and from the posture of serving. And that's what I think God's calling us to do, and that's how we defeat the Pharisee in us. Yes, speak the truth, but speak it from the right posture. That, the scripture makes very clear, is how we end up bringing what? Bringing hope to a sinful world. And speaking of hope to a sinful world, that reminds me of what Jesus did in Luke, or Matthew chapter 12. Let's read the rest of what Jesus did after his confrontation with the Pharisee. This isn't so much what Jesus did, describes what he did, but it's a passage from Isaiah that talks about who he is. Look at verse 18. Here is my servant whom I have chosen. He's talking about Jesus. The one I love and whom I delight. That's the father. Speaking about his son. I will put my spirit on him. We read about that in the New Testament. Spirit came upon Jesus. His baptism drove in the wilderness. What's the power behind his ministry? Look what it says. This is so opposite of many of us. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Listen to this. Till he has brought justice through to victory. Here's verse 21. In his name, in the name of Jesus, the nations will put their hope. Why? Because he brings hope. I love how N.T. Wright, the famous theologian, comments about the meaning of these verses. And I'm just going to read it to you. It says, rather than being like the Pharisees, Jesus comes along with a quiet and gentle work of healing, bearing the love and grace of God to the dark parts of Israel and the world. He was going about bringing God's restoration wherever it was needed, not by making a fuss but by gently leading people into God's healing love. The nations, and alas, Israel as well, as becomes clear in Matthew's story, are bent on violence and arrogance. Man, it just sounds like our day, doesn't it? The nations of our day. Those who want peace and who work for it always, in the end, are shouted down by those who want more money, more land, more security, more status, and are prepared to fight and kill to get it. Those who are great and mighty in the world's terms make sure they're 
voices are heard in the streets. Those who shout loudest get obeyed the soonest. But that's not the servant's way. So too, those who want to get ahead in this world tend to push others out of the way. If they see a weak link, a rod that's bent and could break, a candle that's almost gone out, they will trample on it without a thought. The nations are used to arrogance. Here is a servant who is the very opposite. He is the shining light, the one hopeful sign. Isn't that who we're supposed to be? Isn't that who we're supposed to be as individuals and as a church? Listen, I want you to be reminded for a moment of our vision. You know, in 2015, we started what we call Vision 2022. And we said, what we want to do is bring hope to this world. Let's see how we've been doing. Watch the screen. To me, a vision is a picture of the future that's not been realized yet that makes your heart beat faster. It is bigger than you, it is bigger than us, so that when the vision is accomplished, God gets the glory, and a pastor doesn't, and a group doesn't, and the church doesn't. What we're talking about is, is planting 700,000 seeds, but you know, it starts here at home. Over the next seven years, we want, we want to start five more multi-sites. This allows us to continue to expand our ministry and make a difference. It allows us to go way beyond ourselves. All over the world where we have our global partners. So what I'm going to ask you to do is to adopt seven people in your life. All right, that you are going to pray for and encourage and do everything you can to make sure they hear about the good news of God's love. I knew it was the right place for me to be. I felt God's hand every time I was there saying, Dory, this is right, you're supposed to be here. So they started talking about the baptism and I really wanted to do it, but I was nervous. And so I was sitting next to Jenna, and I said to her, how about we both do it together? And she's like, no, 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 I don't like to be in front of people. And I texted her a few days later. I'm like, come on, Jenna, I don't want to do it by myself. Will you do it with me? And she said yes. So we're up in front together. She proceeds to tell the story of how she invited me to the church, that Pastor Brad had challenged all the volunteers to invite one person to the church. I was her one person. And I didn't know that story until I stood there behind her while she was being baptized and she changed my life. She changed my life. That is what we live for. When it's all said and done, it's about seeing people come to faith in Christ. When it's all said and done, it's about being involved in what matters most to the heart of God. So that every one of us loves other people so much that we just wanna share God's good news of love and grace. That's what, we're, that's what we're all about. 
going to this world from a posture of love, a posture of being an example of Jesus, a posture of prayer and service, and in that posture, speaking God's truth. Speaking God's truth. And we said we wanted to plant seed hope in the gospel in 700,000 people's lives by 2022. Well, I've got some good news for you. We've exceeded 700,000 as of this week. Isn't that good? That is good news. And I can tell you, I can tell you that we are pretty particular in our counting. I mean, we don't want to just throw a number out there and say, oh, we did it. So I think it's time for us to say, not 700,000, now by 2022, let's exceed a million. A million people hearing and seeing the gospel in action and in words. After that, it's up to God to change their hearts and change their lives. But we have to do it, not as Pharisees, judging, condemning, picking fights, yelling, hating, arguing. We've got to do it in the spirit of Jesus. If he sees a candle that's about to go out, he doesn't snuff it out. If he sees a reed that's beginning to bend, doesn't stomp and break it, but restores it, gives it life, gives it strength, helps it, helps it light, glow. That's what we're all about. And because it's our, our global weekend, I want to introduce you to a partner with Wooddale Church in our TTI initiative in Asia, who God is using in tremendous ways. Would you please welcome David Burrow as he comes and joins me? Would you do that? <laughs> David, why don't you come over here and stand next to me because we're gonna, we're gonna show some pictures on the screen behind me in just a, in just a moment. All right, but uh, David, it's a pleasure to have you. I have known David several years now, and uh, his son actually is our key partner in uh, our church planning efforts in Asia. So I've enjoyed getting to know David and his family. But David, you weren't always a follower of Jesus. Tell us what happened. How did your life change? Yes, uh, in 1982, my wife was diagnosed uh, she had a brain tumor. Doctor said uh, they cannot uh, help her, and <clears throat> she will die. But uh, one doctor said that uh, if uh, I believe in God, uh, she may leave. So I got right of all my Hindu god and goddesses, and uh, cried out to one god. And then God heard my cry and sent an evangelist to my home and told the gospel. And I received the Lord Jesus Christ and prayed God to heal my wife. And she was healed from brain tumor. And yeah. how I came to Lord. It's great. Great. And uh, that is just such an awesome story. So uh, David is going along in his practice of Hinduism. His house is full of different gods and goddesses. And his wife has this tumor, and the gods and goddesses aren't healing this brain tumor. She's going to die. She's already having debilitating effects. And uh, as he's told, well, maybe you should seek the God of the Christians, he begins to do that. And God sent some people in a park, I think it was, to share the word of God with him. And then an evangelist came and prayed for him, and he accepted Jesus, threw his gods out of the house, and then they prayed for his wife, and she was miraculously healed. Now, I have been in your home. 
And your wife is the best cook in that part of the world that I've ever been around because she won't cook with spices because you don't like spices. That makes you my dear friend, all right? When I, when I go to David's house, I don't have to take a fire extinguisher with me, all right? I can eat the food. She's an amazing cook, and she's so healthy and alive. You guys yes. even have a, a school yes. with how many students? Uh, we have uh, 300 students in our school. Yes, and besides that, you've adopted, what, 12 kids? Yes, Yeah. So, orphan kids. man of God who loves God dearly and deeply. But uh, tell us a little bit about how God's working in the church planting that we have been partnering with with you. How is he, yes, how is he changing lives? In 2007, uh, I started working with TTI as a trainer of church planters. And uh, it's a really working miracles and uh, very uh, wonderful that uh, out of uh, my students, or one of the students went to a Hindu village where no one knew Jesus Christ and no one was Christian there and uh, through him that the whole village came to Christ yeah and it's uh, often happening in our country yes you know it says that when the apostle Peter preached in the book of Acts that at one time 3,000 people came to faith why why isn't it possible that a man of God could go to a village preach a message and see the whole village come to faith in Christ that's how God is working in some of the most difficult places in the world and so, in a sense, you have this replication. You've got what we would call the Apostle Paul, right? In our Timothy initiative, we talk about Pauls who are pastors with experience, pastors who've demonstrated leadership, pastors who have planted churches. He trains somebody called a Timothy. Right away, that Timothy starts sharing and starts preaching. And just like in the early church, God starts using them in dramatic ways. Well, David, let me see your book here, if you don't mind. This is a book that David wrote. It's about his life, and it's about his story. And uh, he's made it available for us for free. It's translated into English. And you can get a hold of it. All you have to do is go on our website, click where it says blog, and it's the very first blog. It tells you a little bit about David and his life. And then at the bottom, you got the, the word here, H-E-R-E. You click on here, you can electronically download this. And it is a, a spine-tingling story of how God miraculously worked in his life, because there's more miracles than he had time to share with. So I want to encourage you to download that. And the title of your book is, Your Name is David. Not yes. the God no. you were named after, but your Christian name, right? Yes. All right. So David, we want to pray for you. I've asked yes. Pastor Richard, our Global Missions Pastor, to come. We're going to bookend you and pray over you, brother. All right? Would you pray with us? Father in heaven, I thank you so much for David and his wonderful family and how you have saved him and how... He exemplifies your love, how he cares so deeply for not only his nation, but the nation surrounding his nation. How he and others have been willing to sacrifice their lives, how they have endured persecution, how when they've been slapped on one side of the face, they've turned the other side. How they've been willing to go the extra mile, how they've been willing to give away so much. Father, we credit you with that. Only you could bring that kind of change. So I pray for David and his family and those he's training that you would protect them, that you continue to bless them and use them for your glory and for your honor. Lord, I pray and ask that you would cause us to be like David, to love our people, our nation, and be focused on not bringing hatred and discord, but be focused on bringing hope and love, speaking the truth from the posture of Jesus, in whose name we pray.
Amen. Would you thank David again? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.